Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for July 19th, 2021. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, we are going to welcome our wonderful listeners into a conversation that we are having about the news of the day. We are going to consider opinions, no matter where they come from. We're going to try to make sure that our discussion is kept in good faith and above all, we're going to try to keep ourselves and our audience adequately informed. Yeah. You know, we realize that we don't know everything. We are not uh, gods among men. We don't have the superior intellect. We're not we're not fully informed. We're we're just adequately informed. You know, we're having the conversations, but we realize we don't have the full depth of all the knowledge to speak ultra authoritatively on our subjects. We're just. You know, we're having the conversations. We're in the discourse, TM. You know, we're out there doing it. But we're we're not on the ivory tower. We ain't looking down at all the plebs and their, you know, bad opinions. We realize that, you know, we can we can look at things from different places. So, Evan, what are what are we going to start off with today? Well, Joe, we're going to start off by discussing the new HBO miniseries, The White Lotus. The White Lotus. The White Lotus. Yeah, not not any other color or any other flower. It's a white lotus. It's so, not a hotel California. No, it is a hotel in Hawaii, a fictional oh. hotel. Yeah. <laughs> and so the first episode came out last Sunday, a week before we were recording this. The second episode is coming out on the day of recording. Uh, I will be able to watch it tomorrow, the day of the episode's debut. And so, yeah, The White Lotus is about a fictional hotel resort spa thing in Hawaii, and it tracks a week there where different uh, patrons and staff sort of get embroiled in their own controversies. So right now, everything's just been sort of set up. I should said it's uh, I should say it's created, written, directed, produced by Mike White, the great writer and actor of School of Rock and Brad's status. And let's take a look at some of these storylines that are going on here. So we've got Armand. He's the manager. He is an Australian guy, and his job is to sort of keep everybody in line. So he wants to make sure that the guests have a good time, make sure that the staff maintains an appropriate facade. But at the same time, he's really shifty and he's not above telling lies to make sure that things run smoothly. Then there's a group of residents, residents, patrons, how whatever you want to call them, the Mossbacher family that have their own stuff going on. So Connie, Pritt, Connie Britton plays Nicole, the matriarch of the family, who is a famous businesswoman and her husband mark played by steve zahn is freaking out because he believes that he has testicular cancer and he's still waiting on the test results meanwhile they are traveling with their daughter uh livia and her friend paula as well as their son quinn who seems to be autistic or i guess some Sources list him as socially awkward. I, I don't know. Fred Hetchinger is playing him as more than that. Um, so they're all struggling to coexist within the same suite. Uh, there's some other characters going on here. You've got um, 
Tanya, played by the inimitable Jennifer Coolidge, who is desperate for some sort of treatment. She's sort of a hypochondriac, it seems like. And after a particularly emotionally intense treatment from Belinda, played by Natasha Rothwell, uh, it seems like Tanya's developing a bit of an obsession with Belinda. We'll have to see how that plays out. Also worth noting is the couple of Shane and what's her name? Rachel Patton, played by Jake Lacey and Alexandra Daddario, who are celebrating their honeymoon when they are given the wrong suite at the White Lotus. Jake, or Shane, I guess is the character's name, is very upset and he wants to make sure that he has control of the situation and he gets the room upgrade that they were promised. But Rachel, she's from a lower class background and she just wants to enjoy the vacation and not worry about it. So that's that's going to be... Uh, some tension going on down the line because also we know that at the very start of that pilot episode it takes place a week after the main events of the series and we see Shane sitting in a hotel room talking to a couple of other tourists explaining how his honeymoon did not go as planned we also are told through that conversation that someone from the White Lotus has died And Shane's wife is mysteriously not with him. Is she the deceased person or did something else go wrong between them? It's it's very mysterious. And then um, the the last main story arc from this first episode revolves around uh, Lanny, who is a new trainee. And she just seems sort of out of her depth. But at the same time, she is also contending with the fact that she is very pregnant and struggling to hide that from everyone because she needs a job and she doesn't think she can take time off yet when she, it's mm-hmm. literally her first day. Uh, but by the end of the episode, that will bear fruit, so to speak. So before I get into what I think is interesting about this series, because I really liked it, uh, at least the first episode, let, let, let's loop Joe in. What did you find interesting? What uh, What's going on with the White Lotus, to your estimation? I don't know. Like, to me, like, the first episode, I mean, it's all basically set up. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you know, I, I don't know really what to think of it so far. Like, I... I was like, you know, it could go, you know, it, it really is for me, at least it will be in what the rest of the episodes are like for how I enjoy it. Because like the first episode, at least to me, was just kind of like, OK, this kind of feels like a clue, you know, movie like we got some people, we got some things going on. We got a little bit of a who done it that we know is going to happen. So we're trying to think, how is it going to happen? Mm-hmm. Um so I and that's what I'll enjoy is the how is it going to happen? But it's like, oh, you know, these are some interesting setups for people, some some tensions and they got things going on. So we'll see how it interacts with people. I guess I really didn't have a whole lot of deeper connection with it or thoughts on it really beyond that. Yeah. So I might be way off the mark here. It could go in a completely different direction. Go but for it. It feels like it's. It's setting up kind of this almost critique of late capitalism or sort of like a a depiction of the moral decay of the ruling class because clearly it's an exclusive resort and 
fabulously wealthy people are here, but there's there's just something that's not quite right about most of them, whether it's their vanity, as it is with Jennifer Coolidge's character, or their desire for control at the expense of interpersonal relationships, as we're seeing with Jake Lacey and Alexandra Daddario, or even if it is sort of their own anxieties getting in the way of connecting with their children, as we're seeing with Steve Zahn's character, as he tries to connect with his son, but can't can't put his own fears out of his mind. It just kind of seems like all of these characters, who pretty much the only thing we know about them is that they're fabulously wealthy. We also know that they don't seem to be too upstanding and, and good model citizens. Yeah. Well, and and everyone seems to be like a little vapid too, you know. Yeah. It's like um you know the the Shane guy and his the room for him and his fiance, you know, it's like it's like he cares more that he got screwed out of the room than being on a vacation with his newlywed wife, you know? Exactly. Um, you know, or the the family, you know, the, the mom is like just kind of just wants to have a vacation. And what was that weird scene where she like goes to like cut the adult son's or at least teenage son's food? Like, yeah, yeah. Like, what was that? Because lobster is tough. That's that's yeah. her defense. Yeah, no, she definitely infantilizes him uh, yeah. beyond what is appropriate. Yeah. Well, and then the the daughter and her friend are also just, you know, they're, you know, just think they're all above it all and constantly making fun of the son, the brother. Um, really making fun of everyone. I, yeah. I liked that scene where Alexandria Daddario is trying to talk to them by the pool and they're just kind of blowing her off until she takes off her little robe and they see her stunning body and then they're like, oh shit, oh wow. I guess I should have really talked to her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that scene also just felt so weird. It was like, why was she so intent on talking with them and just in a weird, awkwardly set up nature? Like, it it wasn't like fluid it was like very driving at something you know i don't know i I feel like that scene was more done to kind of reinforce that character as sort of being on the wrong side of the class divide like it feels very awkward because she doesn't understand the social cues of this class of people she married into money she's not from money and so she's maybe a little bit overly friendly and awkward and naive and i think that that was a a good character moment for her to kind of see where she's coming from but then it was also we learned in that exchange that she's a journalist so she, I uh, like maybe you know, being a journalist doesn't mean that you're somehow on the same cultural plane as the ultra wealthy. But I would always have this idea that you know, someone who is a journalist is able to see into things a little bit more than the other, you know, another person. So, well, well, I think what they establish is that she's kind of a hack journalist, right? She writes 
like uh, profiles that are interchangeable. Like that was what she said in that conversation is, oh, I wrote a profile of your mom. Well, I wrote some a profile for someone else and then we just changed it to be about your mom. So mm-hmm. I, I think that that's kind of the, the thing is that she wouldn't really have necessarily the virtues that you might ascribe to a traditional journalist. She's just sort of out of her depth professionally and socially. Huh, interesting. I guess I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, so that's that's what I'm looking for in that character. But then also I think there's just this whole other side to it too where we kind of see the hotel and its staff almost trying to grift the <laughs> the rich assholes because there's that scene where the manager admits that he double booked the expensive room that Shane is complaining about, but he's just going to lie through his teeth so that he can (laughs) maintain his sense of control of the resort or how he's so oblivious that he doesn't even recognize that Lanny is going into labor and he doesn't believe it when someone straight up tells him. And, um, you know, Belinda, the the spa manager who does the treatment on Jennifer Coolidge, she basically admits that whatever she was doing was just kind of made up. But again, it, it has such deep meaning to Jennifer Coolidge's character. Um, mm-hmm. So it feels on one hand, it kind of feels like, like I said, sort of this moral decay of the upper crust where we're seeing the seediness of these rich characters but then it also feels like almost a commentary on how this system is beginning to implode where the employees and the people who maybe aren't in the same position of economic power are beginning to grift back and clearly this is going to come to some sort of fatal conclusion by the end of the series yeah I mean, I don't know if the I, I I have always had the impression that there are wide swaths of things that are very expensive, only available to the ultra rich that are just completely fucking bogus. Yeah. Like, and it's really just people. I mean, people. If you can grift the rich, that's a pretty good grift. You know, <laughs> instead of having to reach the masses, you could just get a couple whales. And, you know, really go for it. Um, Like, again, that spa treatment, you know, she may have done some bullshit, but like got like, I don't know, from what we saw, like maybe five hundred dollars in tips. Like Mm -hmm. and, you know, (laughs) and to be honest, I mean, in some ways, you know, therapies, even if the doer thinks it's bullshit, if somebody got something out of it, they got something out of it. So Mm -hmm. but yeah, it's just. I don't know. I don't think this is like something that's the new state of dealing with the rich and what have you. I think this is something that's just always been there. Well, I think maybe there's a new consciousness about it. And I think that's where the satire kind of comes in. Mike White is clearly, I think, poking fun at these types of institutions and the types of people who populate them who can survive pretty much on grift of excess and i I thought i thought it was a a very funny episode i I laughed several times during it so well i mean it's like you know you can um you know for a low price oftentimes you can go to these 
like you can get like 75% of the same experience as the very top end sellers can uh, or buyers can. So like, you know, if you're going to a nice resort in Hawaii, you know, you're already like getting most of it. And then these guys, these people spend so much more money to just have, I don't know, like an exclusive big room or you know, these different a services fourth pool in their room instead of just three. Yeah. Or, um, or like the, the ability to act like tyrants around the staff and they respond to your wishes. Mm-hmm. Like, like they're paying a lot of money to have that. And, you know, it's just, it's just interesting, you know? Yeah, it is indeed. Um, so yeah, the white Lotus, I really enjoyed this episode. I'm going to keep watching. Joe, do you think you're going to keep watching? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, like I said, this first episode just felt like set up to me. So maybe I'll watch the rest to see where it goes, but I wasn't as enamored with it as you have been. Um, but I also did watch it late last night and I was pretty tired. So who knows? Maybe that affected my enjoyment of it. But, yeah, we'll just have to see what else is on when. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> I turn on the TV and things come on it. I don't know. It's almost always the last dance. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Almost always <laughs> this last week for me watching again. Oh my gosh. Let's just, let's just new podcast. It's just, just, just going over the last dance. We're going to have. More interviews. We're going to get Scotty Pippen in here to have some hot takes. It's going and to be he's great. He's got him. Oh, boy. Yeah, he's, he's got, got him. him. Yeah. He's had some time to ruminate and 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 slow roast these hot takes. <laughs> Good old Scotty Pippen. Good old. He's So, old Joe. Now. They're all old now. Hey, hey Evan. <laughs> what else are we talking about today? All right, Evan. So we're going to talk about Cuba. Cuba, oh, the island oh. nation. Oh, I thought you meant the cigar. Oh, uh, well, that kind of comes into it. Oh, so. no, I really thought you meant the small town in Illinois. Oh, I thought you were talking about the small town in Wisconsin. Oh, well, you know, dairy. So what's going on in Cuba? (laughs) (laughs) So what has been going on in Cuba? Um, So recently in Cuba, there have been protests pretty widespread across the nation of Cuba. The small, I mean, relatively small island nation, but I mean, it's it's the biggest in the Caribbean. So, um, you know, however you choose to quantify the size of (laughs) Cuba, um, And they are one of the last holdouts of basically Soviet-style state socialism that we, you know, generically refer to as communism. And recently there have been a large uh, showing of protests in the nation. And this has been to protest... Um, really big lack uh, or big decline in medical care and also just a decline in food. They have not had 
enough food to feed everyone, which is something that kind of has chronically happened to Cuba over the years, but it has really come to a greater extent, a greater spearhead at this point. Um, and it's, it's the, you know, it came about through a lot of missteps by the Cuban government that led it here today. It's not just, Hey, let's go protest. There's been a lot of shit going on in Cuba. Like, and, and the protests have been enough that they've even flown out like fighter jets to go and make a show of force um, to people. So, so what happened? What happened? What's been going on in Cuba? Well, Cuba is a very isolated country. I mean, the U.S. has had sanctions on it to you know for a very long time, a trade embargo. But really, for the most part, the trade embargo goes one way. Cuba can't sell its goods in the United States, whereas most companies can sell their goods in Cuba. I mean, it's not a huge market because they're pretty underdeveloped. Well, deba- you know, you debate on how you define these terms, but um, they they aren't a super rich country, and. Um, so what has happened is that, you know, over the years, uh, you know, COVID has, you know, the last year COVID has been bad and put strain on everyone's healthcare system. But why is Cuba um, having such big issues? Well, this all stems from a decision uh, last year to suspend Cuba's dual currency system. And what is that? What it, what what is that? It, it's weird. And what are the implications of it? So, for a long time, Cuba had two forms of money. Um, they had one form of money um, that was issued by the government, and you could only use it in Cuba. You know, it had no value outside of Cuba. Nobody used it. You could use it to pay like your electrical bill. You know, you pay your, you know whatever to the government. Uh, you know, anything like that, and you could use it in some shops. But then there was this other currency that was the foreign exchange currency. And this dollar, this peso, whatever you want to call it, this this unit of money was pegged to the dollar, and it could be used internationally. And this is what the Cuban government would use to pay for imports and other stuff outside of the country. And if you were to go as a tourist to Cuba, you would um, put your money into this foreign exchange currency and use that to pay for things. Well, what ended up happening with this uh, currency, this dual currency system, is that governments would the government would make all of you know like seventy percent of the people in Cuba uh, who are working are employed by the state, and they would be paid in the first currency, the one that couldn't be exchanged, and it had a really low value because you know you couldn't really do a whole lot with it. You could pay the government, uh, you could pay utilities, you could buy things in shops that were made in Cuba and sold by Cuban enterprises. But if you wanted anything else that was imported or anything other than that, um, you would have to use these foreign exchange dollars. But the foreign exchange dollars were rare. And um, 
you know, pegged to the dollar. So they were very, very valuable and not a whole lot of Cuban people had them. So it created some discrepancies. You know, it created the scenario where you would hear, you know, if you did the exchange between the two, you would hear like a doctor makes like 25 bucks a month, whereas a taxi driver makes like 60 bucks a week, you know, or something like that. Um, these outrageous scenarios. But they decided to end this dual system. They got rid of the uh, lesser currency. And what ended up happening was there was a mad dash for these exchange foreign exchangeable dollars um, because they were very much more valuable than the other dollars. The other ones were just worth nothing. So it's just led to a scenario where the Cuban government now has not had a whole lot of money because everyone scrambled for those dollars and they're hoarding them and they don't want to give them up. Um, so the Cuban government is not having a whole lot of money to buy things on the, you know, the world stage. So that has led to them have a decreasing ability to buy medical supplies. And because during the time of COVID, uh, you know, prices of food and medical supplies have gone up and they have less money available to begin with. They have been able to import less, you know, these materials between food and medical supplies. And the Cuban people seem to have had enough um, because it's been bad. It's been real bad. And, you know, in Cuban history, it has often, well, not always been bad, but there have definitely been times like this. But the, the protests have really ramped up. Evan, what do you got you got any? I ranted for a while. What do you? You got anything to say? No, it's all right. I guess what is most interesting to me about this whole Cuba scenario is the way that it asks us to consider the fundamental viability of communism. Because in that article that you shared with me, that was basically the guy's pitch. Right? Was that like, oh well, we have to just kind of push Cuba. We got to nudge it to be more capitalist. But my question to you, Joe, is to what extent are the failings in Cuba's failings of communism as an idea? And in what way are they failings of these specific leaders who don't have the technocratic skill to take advantage of things such as Cuba's natural agricultural resources. Well, right. That that was one thing mentioned in the article is that Cuba has some of the best land for agriculture, but because they have not been able to mechanize in the same way the United States has, they have like, I don't know, like a tenth of the productivity per acre of land that we do in the United States, which just also leads to food shortages. Um, you know, it, it's from what I have learned in my kind of, you know, looking at things, communism is real great if you want to like, it's radical in some ways, but if you want to just stop a society at a certain point in time, really turn to communism, like you know, communism in Cuba means that it's kind of been trapped in like the 1950s ever since the 1950s. 
you know, it's agriculture is about the same. It's housing, you know, situ a lot of its technologies are about the same. Um, and, um, you know, when everybody talks about the cars down there because they haven't gotten any new cars in Cuba since the 1950s. So they're driving around in these old, you know, steel Detroit behemoths. So, um, yeah, Cap, you know, the whole communism shtick is that, like, maybe there's some form of it that could really be done and effective, but it really leans heavily on the idea that there can be um, well-qualified individuals steering at the head of the economy who are making the best decisions along some planes and that they can manage all of this in a decent way, heavy-handedly. Whereas it just seems that for the most part, as proven through most communist regimes, it really can't. Um, and, and it just gets hard because when you choose the communist path, like you get to distribute more wealth, but then there's less money all around. So there's less, you know, going into development of things. There's less money going into, um, you know, uh, resources and capital development. And, and then there's also been the part of communism where they just shed, you know, they just turned a blind eye to what's going on in the rest of the world or shut it out. So there isn't the free exchange of ideas where, you know, between, you know, like the U S and France, there's, you know, I would imagine that there's good communication, between, you know, like agricultural information and policies and, and, uh, you know, mechanization and, and all that kind of stuff. Whereas there isn't the same sort of exchange of ideas between Cuba and the United States because the Cuban, I mean, the United States has had its embargoes of Cuba, but also Cuba is not, you know, like letting, you know, it's dignitaries go and study at the United States or, you know, or it's engineers or, you know, stuff like that. So well, let's pull this apart a little bit because I want to tease out the direction of the causality here, because is it that Cuba or similar communist regimes are, are simply more ideologically closed minded or is it that uh, historically red scares have made capitalist powerhouses close their doors to communist diplomacy. I think at this stage of the game, um, and from what my understanding was, is that, you know, part of the way communist regimes would try, like a big part of them was to try and craft the message that, you know, this was the, inevitable part of history, you know, our glorious revolution, things are going good. Like, you know, it takes a lot of state effort and some coercion of the citizens for them to be okay with communism. Um, Because if you can hear, like, if you knew that, hey, you know, like I'm having to do all this stuff, I, I, you know, I, I have a pretty substandard, uh, living, you know, I have no consumer products. I have none of this stuff. And then someone, you know, 
Or in this other country is, you know, they're, they're free to do whatever. And they also have all this other good stuff. Like they're not going to be very accepting of the regime. So these, uh, you know, these communist countries really shut down what their citizens can go and do in the Western world, oftentimes um, not permitting people to go to the Western world. Whereas, um, you know, different people within the Western world are perfectly fine or willing to go to these places to do things. But then you run into the scenario where almost all these communist um, countries are dictatorships and, you know, if you go in and help some, you help the people, but then you also help entrance a tyrannical ruler by making things better. So it becomes a weird trade off and balancing of priorities. And, you know, who are you who are you platforming and legitimizing or, um, you know, helping people just straight out? It's a complicated question and has been. Um, again, Cuba and like North Korea are like the last standouts of the old 20th century communism. So what then do you make of the embargo and its utility or disutility in 2021? Well, so so like I said before, the embargo is mostly a one way direction. So we can't buy Cuban goods. We can't go to the store and buy Cuban cigars or any of the textiles that they make or, you know, whatever other products. But we and do. It's worth noting that Obama tried to relax that, but the Trump administration completely reversed course. Right. But but some people will say, oh, the U.S. embargo is, you know, the sanctions are making these protests happen. They're making the people starve. Um but that's just not the case because um, we still allow food to be, you know, exported from the United States into Cuba to be sold there. So um, actually, as far as like chicken exports, Cuba is number five on the list of countries that the United States exports chicken to. So like we're sending, you know, we're allowing our food and, you know, vital supplies to be sold to Cuba it's just that because of their own decisions and their, you know, own lack of development over the years, they have a really low amount of money um, and they made this decision with their currency that basically just threw it into free fall. And because of this, um, you know, it, it's not so much the U.S. sanctions and, you know, the people in Cuba definitely aren't protesting the sanctions. They're protesting not being able to eat and get adequate medical treatment. OK, well, yeah. let's uh, let's 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 take this one level deeper here. So okay. um, United States, they're, they're selling food to Cuba. Is there any substantial amount of food aid? Like, is there any food that we're just giving to Cuba or it's more just like. We, open market you can buy it if you want type deal i don't know okay because I, I think that that's actually a really important distinction and actually plays a role in u.s culpability because to say that the u.s will sell food to cuba therefore we're not culpable is i think a little bit dubious as long as we have an embargo we are decreasing 
a you know the amount of Cuban goods that can be sold because we're denying them access to their closest big consumer market, right? And if they don't have access to that, they're clearly being starved of economic development, which lowers their aggregate demand, lowers their purchasing power, and makes them less able to buy food. So it's like saying, you know, you you can buy anything you want from us, but the money that you need to buy it is going to come through trade and we're not going to trade with you. So yeah, I, I get that, you know, we're not boarding up the walls and saying we're not going to sell you any food, but you know how are how are they supposed to pay for it if we won't buy goods from them well and i mean it's it's also the trade-off how much do you um you know let a uh dictatorship that's oppressive and goes against our general values as a country flourish or do you you know, and, you know, provide legitimacy to it and then also helping the people of the country, you know? Sure. I, I understand your trade-off. Uh, I, I guess I think my issue is really more with Noah Smith's underlying argument than anything that you have said. The idea, I, I just think it's dismissive of the role that the United States plays, at least as a contributing factor. I mean, I wouldn't say it's, the most pressing factor. I think it's the communist government of Cuba that it most mismanages things. And like said, you know, it has the most product, you know, some of the most productive agricultural land in the Caribbean. Um, you know, it could be doing more. It could be if more effectively managed. Um, but it's just coming yeah, no down doubt. To, to decisions that they're making. Whereas like, you know, people, like the way the discourse sometimes goes is that people will make it seem like, you know, it's like just like the reason there is no food is because of the U.S. where, you know, it may be a contributing factor, but I don't think it's the main contributing factor at all. Well, I think that you are I, I think that's a fair enough take, but I believe that the underlying uh, peace was was a bit dismissive of the idea that the U.S. would play any role at all. So that's what I'm taking issue with here. Hmm. 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 They should just not uh, oppress their people. <laughs> well, well, neither should we. But here we are. <laughs> I always hate these conversations about. You know, when it when it gets starting talking with the, the tankies or communist people, it's like, well, you do this stuff, too. Well, it's it's different. It I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But there are there are protests in Cuba. It is due mostly to mismanagement of the by the Cuban government. But I guess there may be some part little part of it that the u.s plays into it but you know somehow cuba is still hanging on you know hey they're still there you know they're they're around yeah they're still doing it which is just interesting how they've been able to continue to be the country that it is you know it's it's almost like you know and i say they are a repressive government but as far as the scale of kind of 
um, brutalist communist dictatorships, Cuba, you know, historically has kind of been on the better side of things. You know, you don't hear as many horror stories about people in Cuba, but I don't know. And it, it also gets complicated because like Cuban Americans are a very distinct force and I don't know, they have their very own, uh, you know, set of opinions and it's like, they're the ones who got out. So they're very critical of the regime. And then it's like, well, what's it like actually for Cuban people in Cuba? And then you, you just get into all these weird conversations that you don't really know how to always navigate. But as far as I know, Cuba has been one of the not as repressive communist governments, whereas North Korea is like the most, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just funny or, you know, just interesting how those are the two that are basically left. Um, I mean, there are other countries that have communism. I mean, like Vietnam still has communism. Well, they like, have Vietnamianism. Uh-huh, Vietnamianism. <laughs> um, and but it's also and you know, China is still technically a communist country, but like, I don't know. It, it's just like the term is like North Korea and Cuba are the two last places that describe accurately what was like the Soviet, you know, the Cold War era of communism. Yeah, there are other nations that still have communist ideology or where communist parties play a large role in politics, but there's no other places that have total state control of production. Yeah, or I mean, even in China, you know, the communist party is the ruling class, but like... They have markets in China. Yeah, yeah. It's more capitalist than Cuba. Yeah, yeah. Um, definitely. So, and, you know, it's just, it's weird as we're going into the, you know, into the 21st century, you know, because there are real debates about, you know, the difference between democracy and authoritarianism, you know, we're not, you know, um, what was it? The, the end of history, Francis Fukuyama's book Mm. that basically Mm. posited that every, you know, country was going to be like a, come a liberal democracy and you know the whole world was going to be at peace and there wasn't going to be a whole lot going on it's like oh there can still be uh, people out there demanding dictatorships and they can still be very effective (laughs) and they can still they can still withhold you know you know incredible power over their people so it's just interesting how we go from here how do we go from here well, we need more Cubans defecting to come play Major League Baseball. Yeah. I I still don't get how... I mean, for the longest time, um, you know, uh, Cuban... I'm pretty sure the policy is still in place that if you flee from Cuba you ba- and make it to the United States, you really only have to be here for, like, a year and, like, be on good terms and not like get arrested and shit, then you're able to become a U.S. citizen. Interesting. Yeah, which is something offered to Cuban people. And I'm like, why don't we do this to all refugees from everywhere? 
Like, well, you see, that wouldn't <laughs> uh, that wouldn't advance our anti-communist goals. So, but it would. <laughs> if they're Get fleeing the from not a communist country. Well, yeah. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I'm saying that the reason why it politically was feasible to do it (laughs) is not feasible to apply it to other nationalities. I was taking it as you saying that that happening would advance communism, whereas it's actually saying that it's not advancing explicitly the policy of fighting communism. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All we're right. on, we're on yeah. the same. Okay. Track. Uh, yeah. That's the confusion. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we talk it out folks, because sometimes yeah. the wires get crossed. Just ask Tim Robinson. Hmm. Tim Robinson. Doesn't he have a new show? Well, he has a new season of his old show. New season, old show. Yeah. Why not just do a new show every time? Well, I'll ask you, why, why Why have we done 67 episodes of Adequately Informed? Why didn't we make a new podcast every week? Oh my gosh, the Squarespace, you know, bandwidth that that would take, all the money, owning all those <laughs> domains and hosting those websites. Ugh. Well, I'm sure Tim Robinson has similar constraints. <laughs> oh, he has loads of money. He could have so many websites. <laughs> That's have, what's uh, important about having a Netflix show, right? Yeah, websites. he could probably have uh, calicocutpants.com. Okay. All I'm right. sure that's a reference that's hilarious to somebody. I hope so. I hope everyone yeah. likes me. I do too. I hope everyone likes you too. You're Thanks. a special guy, Evan. Thanks. No one ever tells me that enough. Yeah. Well, you got anything else to say? Um, Jose Abreu. What fabulous almost last words. Um, <laughs> well, I think that does it today. A little bit a uh, shorter episode. Um, we hope that you enjoyed listening. We thank you for listening. Um, we also yes, thank, thank you, Hish, for the music as always. But my name's Joe Hicks, and mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed.